What do CEOs need to know about sales these days? A lot. Outdated sales strategies and tactics plague most companies today. Listen to what innovative CEOs and experts have to say about how to change all that with Sales Talk for CEOs. Welcome to Sales Talk for CEOs. My guest today started in the wine industry. She and her husband built a great wine business, and when it came time to sell it, they learned about business brokerage for the first time. Sure enough, they ended up in that business, and they have grown tremendously, and especially in the last three years over COVID, they've grown through making some very strategic acquisitions. So I am very happy to welcome Jessica to the show today. Thank you so much, Alice. It's great to be here. Well, I'm excited to have you because I think that a lot of CEOs out there are thinking about growing by acquisition or maybe have even already done an acquisition. So it's definitely something that we want to touch on. But let's start by just tell us a little bit about your current company. Yeah. So uh, my current company, uh, we are in the mergers and acquisition space. Um, but what we do is we help prepare business businesses for sale. So get them ready for exit through our one division called Exit Factor. And then when they're ready for exit, we pass them over to our other division, which is a business brokerage and M&A advisory firm called Transworld Business Advisors. Um, and we're active in three states. Uh, we're active in Colorado, Texas, and Nevada. Wow. All right. So um, we're going to talk about how you got to be in three states, but let's rewind back to the time when you were in the wine business. So <laughs> I know you told me before we started that you actually studied international business, not wine. I mean, some people, especially around here uh, in Northern Nevada and Northern California, the wine country is close by and people do go to school for that, right? At UC Davis yeah. and, and take those classes. But you got interested in wine and you had this wonderful wine business and then and with your husband. So uh, that's always interesting to me also when couples work together and then you sold it. So tell us a story starting from there. Yeah. So we, like you said, my husband and I were working um, in Aspen, Colorado for a corporate company um, in 2008, 2009. We were backed by Lehman Brothers. So most people know how that story ends. Um, and we decided we had a friend that had a really cool wine concept for a wine retail store and a wine brokerage business. So brokering really high-end expensive wines to collectors throughout the world. He, we were fortunate enough that he helped us start that model in a different market in Naples, Florida. We built that company over three years and grew it significantly. But like we were chatting in, in the green room before is my thought was it would be so fun to taste wine all day, travel to all these locations and, you know, it would just be fun. And it actually became really trying to drink all day traveled to all these locations. So we, we did hit burnout about three years into that business and decided to sell that business and return to some type of more professional services career. Uh, so we sold that business through a business broker. Didn't know they existed before this process. Didn't really know how to sell a business. We didn't know that was a thing, especially in small business. Um, but we were an interest to the entire industry through that process. And we said, you know, maybe this is our next step. 
This makes a lot of sense from our background in professional services, but we can also tie in our experience as entrepreneurs building, growing, and selling our own company and help others do the same thing. Yeah. So, all right. You thought business brokerage sounds like an interesting industry. Now what? And <laughs> what do we do? Yeah. So I'm the research person. My husband's the person's like, oh, this is great. Let's go. Let's just do this. Right. And I'm like, all right, let's slow down. Let's do a little bit of research first. So we started researching the industry and we found that there was a movement towards um, either franchise operations or um, cooperative or collaborative organizations. So even though we represent still local businesses and we have a local market presence, you still need a national buyer pool, national resources. And to do that on your own starting up, we knew it was going to be very cumbersome. Um, so that was what our research showed us. And we decided instead of going the cooperative model that a franchise model actually works better for us. So that was our next step. So we started betting different franchisors that were in the space of business brokerage. Back then and even today, it's, it's a small group. It's about four, four different organizations. So vetted them to figure out which one was the best, best fit for us. Yeah. And that is a process in and of itself, right? To, to really do your due diligence, to figure out if you want to be part of a franchise, because, you know, they obviously have some control, but they also offer some benefits. So that's, that's great. All right. So here you are, you've joined this franchise and it's you and your husband. How do you go out and get your first deals? Oh, so fun. Um, so it was me, my husband and my dog. Um, and we started by literally walking around, knocking on doors, introducing ourselves to the business owners in our local market. So at that time, we bought franchises are broken into protected marketing territories. So we just have one territory, a database of about 10,000 businesses that we were going to market to. So we just started by now remind me what year this was, because you said this knocking was, on doors. <laughs> yeah, this was 2013. So it's not like that long ago. But yeah, we thought the best old school method was to just introduce ourselves. Um, we moved back to Colorado. So we we're in Denver. Um, had never lived in Denver before. We didn't know anybody. So we thought really the best way was to go into businesses and introduce ourselves as new business owners as well in the community and just be a resource. Um, so that was how we got our first sale. Um, our first client was through um, that just door knocking process of walking into businesses and introducing ourselves. Um, the first year we did a lot of that. We did a lot of networking, a lot of community involvement. Um, but it was funny because my um, my degree like was in international business, but I was really heavily focused in digital marketing um, and digital lead acquisition prior to this. And I was a little bit hesitant when the franchisor told me, hey, go knock on doors, go meet face to face to peop with people. I was like, why can't I just pull them in off the internet? But it ended up being and still is one of the best ways to meet business owners when they're going through sometimes a very emotional and, and challenging transition through their life. They, they want that relationship and that rapport. Um, so that, yeah, knocking on doors is how we got our first client. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I think that we overlook this sometimes that just getting out there and meeting people at their place of business. I mean, that doesn't apply to every kind of company, but for many companies, it absolutely does. And then networking in the community doing, uh, you know, community work, volunteering for a nonprofit, going to these networking events where other professionals are there and you just start to meet so many people 
now you have this really wide network that you can start to leverage and people get to know you and they know what you do. And, and it's really a, a healthy way to start. All right. So you, you do that. You obviously got some good business going. And then at some point you're saying to yourself, well, I can't do everything. I've got to run the company, right? And and then yeah. I've also got to go out and sell. And then I've also got to actually get these businesses sold, right? So right. did you start by hiring other people to do the other things like like uh, getting the businesses sold, you know, doing that research and all of that? Or did you start by going out and hiring some other salespeople? And maybe, maybe you're going to tell me that the um, franchisor had some ideas for you as well. Yeah, so it was interesting. So we actually started by hiring salespeople right away. Um, and I think looking back for at least us, that was a mistake. We still weren't experts or professionals in what we were doing. And so to hire and train other people, even though the franchisor helped, wasn't the right move for us. So that first class of our sales reps we call brokers um, was, was not a good fit for our organization culturally, didn't really work out in the end. Um, and we ended up um, resetting and parting ways with all of those. And then in 2014, we chose to focus on the back-end operations. So we started with a part-time assistant that was eventually um, promoted to our, our full-time operations manager that was helping service our clients on the back-end of the business that myself and my husband were bringing in, really got our feet underneath of us, good foundation. And then in the beginning of 2015 was then when we restarted hiring salespeople. Okay. And that is something I've heard before, right? The first sales hires did not work out right? for yeah. many, many different reasons. And especially because you're still trying to do the work and keep the business floating, uh, you know, run the business, but then also keep the sales flowing in and, and uh, keep the cash flow flowing in. And then you have to add to that training all of these people. Yeah. And then it's hard to hire people. And like you said, they just really weren't a good fit. Mm -hmm. um, so that, you know, that's a difficult situation. All right. So you, you let them go and, you know, regrouped and came back. And then how did you figure out how to do it better? Yeah. So one, we knew how to run our process better. We knew how to sell what we were selling better. Um, we did, um, with our franchisor have a really comprehensive training program. And I think the biggest thing is that the lesson we learned through that was what type of person was going to be a good fit for our organization. So culture, yes, really big and important in our organization that someone fits our, our culture and values. Our culture is what we call uh, collaboratively competitive. So we're in a sales organization. We are competitive, but we still collaborate and work together. Yeah. So that was important. But also um, we in our business, our brokers and our salespeople are 1099 commission only salespeople. And what I had to learn and what we found is that there is a subset of salespeople that want those roles, right? Because it's uncapped. You can make a lot of money. You have a lot of flexibility and freedom in that career, but it's a, a smaller subset than sales professionals that want W2 base plus commission more stable. So we learn to be patient. Um, in the vetting process and waiting for those right individuals to appear. Um, it's again, smaller subsets. So like before, when we were hiring, we put out a job post, we get 25 applications. Now with the new restructure, we get five, right? And of those five, how many fit our culture and our values? Maybe one, right? So it was all about patience in the beginning. And in the beginning, it's funny when I talk to my colleagues, they look at us now and we have 
59 brokers on the team now and they're like you're huge how did you get there but it really and you mentioned this in the intro it really took us a long time to build slowly so our growth um, in terms of sellers if you look at it from 2015 to 2020 was a slow and steady progress it really wasn't too it almost starts to like compound right it really wasn't until the last three years where we started majorly growing the number of people on our team yeah, I think that's important, right? Sometimes people look at us and like, how did you get there? Well, it wasn't without some pain, yeah. <laughs> you know, some patience, right? And then progress over time. So I think those three three things are important to remember. We really doesn't happen overnight, right? It took me 10 years to be an overnight success. Right, so, exactly. <laughs> um, all right, so now you've got... Um, you know, people working for you and, and you're growing. How did you decide to do these acquisitions that you did? So you, you must have felt like things were going pretty well, right? In Denver and you had however many sales reps working for you, all bringing in, you know, businesses that for, for you to sell and that was going very well. And then you had some conversations and said, we want to grow bigger. How do we do it? So tell us about that. Yeah. So one of the unique things about being a franchisee is growing through acquisitions very easy, right? Well, I shouldn't say very easy. It's easier than in other industries because the companies you're acquiring are usually exact copies of yours in different areas. So as we started to gain some momentum with our hiring and staff, we just started with expansion in Denver. Um, so we bought out some fellow franchisees in Denver, um, expanded into the whole city then started a little bit more um, throughout the state into the Colorado Springs area, Fort Collins area. Now, it made sense to us at the time because we're in the business of buying and selling companies, right? We have speeches and we proclaim this is a great growth model is to grow by acquisition. It, it was interesting because we took a look back at ourselves probably around 18 and 19. And we said, we're preaching growing by acquisition, but we're actually not doing it ourselves. Um, so that was the impetus for us. And we'd started with, again, a couple transactions close to home markets that we're really already operating in. Um, and then over time we did decide to expand into other areas, um, outside of Denver and then outside of Colorado. So how did you decide where to expand to? Was it mostly driven by what other franchisees were interested in selling their franchises? Uh, so back to my research, right? Love to research. So we had decided in late 2019, early 2020, that we wanted to expand outside of the state of Colorado. And we did a research study on the markets we thought were um, developing quickest, quickly, quickest for our industry. Um, and we also looked at what could be a market that could consolidate. Um, where was there a lot of small players that we could maybe do some acquisitions uh, move them all together, and then we create this multiple effect. Um, so we looked at a lot of different markets. We looked at uh, markets in California. We looked at markets in Phoenix. Uh, we're originally from the East Coast. We knew we didn't want to go back there, so we took the East Coast off of it. But it was that combination of research and also, where do we want to be as owners? Like, where is a market we feel like we can thrive in, want to have a home in or spend time in? Um, because we knew it was going to be important to either relocate or spend a lot of time in these new markets to build that culture and build that team. So research first and then pick those uh, markets, narrow them down was where do we want to be personally? Um, so Dallas was the first area. 
love Colorado. I do not love shoveling snow all winter long. <laughs> so there was uh, personally a drive to go somewhere warmer that we could spend the winters at. And so that's why, you know, Dallas and Phoenix were on our list. Um, Austin as well, as we also now operate on. Um, so Dallas was our first acquisition because all of the numbers lined up, the potential, the growth opportunity, everything like that. Wow. So, okay, you're growing, you're acquiring uh, these companies, adding on new team members and, and trying to keep the sales going, right? Keep everybody mm -hmm. motivated to sell. But then you said they're independent contractors, right? So it's, you know, it's kind of on them, right? Either they do or they don't. They don't get paid if they don't. But mm -hmm. you still sell and deliver. And I would imagine that your husband does as well. So talk to us about your role in sales and how it's changed over the growth of your company. Yeah, it's a great question. So we um, have a metric in our company where we track the partner contribution to revenue. And which means how much revenue are we generating and closing in the business? And back in like 2018, it was like 85% or something like that, right? And that we knew that we wanted to decrease that percentage over time because we knew if we ever wanted to exit, that was a risky prospect of the two of us generating most of the revenue. So over time, we had this balance of the, the player coach role, right? Where we would still be working on deals, but we would be coaching the team and developing the team. And little by little, it moved more towards coach and less away from player. So where we sit today, I don't, I'm not a player anymore. I don't bring in revenue to the company. I don't close deals. My role is coach and development of the team. Um, my husband is very talented M&A advisor. So he picks and chooses some deals that we work on. But the real role we still do have in, in revenue development is rainmaking, relationship building, things like that. But we're not going to be in the weeds of every deal because we just don't have time. Um, and to be honest, like some of our team members now are way better players um, than at least I've ever been. My husband, like I said, is very good. But way better players and way better brokers than I ever was. I'm a relationship person. I'm that rainmaker role. I do podcasts like this. Um, but to get into the weeds of the deal is not best suited for me. So really rainmaker and coach is where I sit. And then my husband sparingly can take on about three or four deals a year. Um, but sits a lot in that coaching role. So Right. So each of these independent contractors is responsible for getting their own deals, but it sounds like you're bringing in some business to redistribute back out as well. And I love uh, that you are doing that rain, rainmaking role. And I think that's a really important role for a founder. You are doing podcasts and you also wrote a book. So tell us about your yeah. book. Yeah. So as I'm out networking in the community and building relationships, the number one question I get asked is how do I increase the value of my business? And I can't answer that question in like a five minute conversation or even over a coffee. So um, in 2019 uh, or wait, no, 2020, actually, it was during the pandemic year. I decided to write the answer in a book um, in a book form. So I wrote the book, Getting the Most for Selling Your Business. And it's all the tips, secrets that buyers are looking for. And when they're inquiring, acquiring a business, which ultimately increases the value that that business sells for. Yeah. So that's a great lead generator, right? Because you can send that out to people. Maybe it's out in the bookstores locally in the areas where you have um, offices. Uh, people can hand that to someone else they know. Um, so I think that is a great lead generator. But where would you say that your company gets most of the leads from? 
Um, still networking and relationship development. So I think, and I just assume this based on our business and a lot of our clients referrals and networking is still our number one lead generator in our business by far. Um, so whenever we bring a new salesperson on, we, we teach them some tactics to get short-term leads, right? It can be door knocking, paying for leads, marketing activities, but we also tell, teach them to focus on the long-term lead generation, which is relationships. Um, so from day one, we have them involved in networking groups and community involvement. Um, and we know that that's not going to pay off in leads today, Right. But typically in our business, two, three years down the road, you get to be known in your marketplace. You get to be known as an expert. And as long as you're continuing to foster and nurture those relationships, um, you're going to get most of your business that way. So that's still by far our, our number one lead generation is just being involved in the community. Over time, um, myself and some of our partners and longer term um, brokers, like we've narrowed our focus. Um, I'm very involved in entrepreneurial groups. So when I'm giving back or I'm involved in the community, I'm even involved like specifically in supporting small business owners, um, supporting entrepreneurs getting off the ground. Like that's my focus. I have other fo uh, brokers that are really focused in uh, their religious sectors, others that are focused in their very, very like local community if they're in a small environment, but just really fostering those relationships and going deep in those relationships and those organizations. I mean, it definitely is a long game. I mean, you could be networking and meet someone who says, oh yeah, I was thinking about selling my business, right? But typically yeah. they're like, oh yeah, you know, I hadn't really thought about that. Yeah, maybe in 10 or 15 years, I would want to sell my business, right? So yeah. it is a long game. And then and sometimes, uh, you, you know, you can help them get ready sooner, right? Sooner than they thought they might be able to get the value that they would want for their business. And that's why I love what you said, that you have a, a segment of your business that does nothing but help prepare people to be able to sell their business. And then when they're actually ready to sell their business, you have another division that does that. Yeah. Uh, I think that is, you know, an excellent way to go. And I know many of the people listening to this are probably thinking, wow, <laughs> yeah, I want to sell my business. So I want to learn more about that. So maybe you can pick up a copy of the book. We'll put it in the show notes for sure. It's called getting the most for selling your business. Um, and definitely, um, take a look at that. But, um, I want to hear just a little bit more for, uh, all our listeners about, the acquisitions. And so what did you learn that would be helpful to others who are thinking about making an acquisition as the primary way to grow their business? Because not only do you get a business that might have a physical space and some, you know, assets, but you're really picking up the people, right? And yeah. then that presents a whole nother myriad of, of things to, you know, challenges and things to do. So what are some of the key things that you would tell anyone who wants to grow their business through acquisition? Yeah, it's a great question. So first I start with what area do you want to grow? And usually there's there's three reasons that you're going to grow through acquisition. Um, you're going to grow for people and stay in your same industry. Um, you're going to grow for market share and maybe move into a different market. And instead of building and growing new market space like we did in Dallas, you just acquire something that's already established. And then the third reason you're going to um, grow through acquisition is if you want to add a different service or a different product onto 
your business. So I usually tell people scan through your PL and anyone you're paying a lot of money to or receiving a lot of money from in terms of vendors or partners, that's probably a potential acquisition down the road. Um, so that would be like the third reason is expanding your products or services. So once you know your reason for acquisition, um, you can develop a fairly targeted list of who you would want to acquire. And then the key there again is patience. So not, you, you mentioned this, Alice, like not everybody is ready to sell at any given time. Um, so one of my colleagues in the trans world franchise that own the, the Austin offices, Austin, Texas, we originally started talking about an acquisition um, in 2018 and we just bought his office earlier this year in 2023. So if you know a target's right, but it's not the right time for them, you still form that relationship and you're just patient in the process. Cause you can't, and I, I've learned this in our business too, you're not gonna force anyone to sell. Like you're not, offer is never gonna, sometimes if you're willing, we really willing to overpay, which is a whole different story. But like, you're not gonna force somebody or incentivize somebody with money to sell their business if they're not ready to leave. So you just have to be patient. Um, and then I also like people will shy away from, let's call them fixer uppers, right? So people will tend to, when they're buying a business, they'll poke holes in what's wrong in the business. And when you're acquiring for strategic growth, you need to shift your thinking about what's wrong with that business to what's the opportunity for your business. So for example, we acquire a lot of franchise practices that are not doing well. Um, some have been completely um, not operational with one or less people in there. But we know we have a process, a system, a model, and a culture that if we can plug it in, we can turn that around very quickly. Yeah. And the benefit is we can usually acquire those businesses for a much lower price point than we would if we bought a business that was fully operational. So that, those are my keys is like just narrow what you're going to acquire for that will give you your targeted list. Be patient over time. It's a long game as well. Um, and then, you know, look for look for the fixer uppers. I've, we've been really successful in that. And I think it's also really nice to know that I don't want this to come across as condescending, but like in a way you're saving a business from going out of business. Um, and that really is important to that owner, but also those people that are on that team. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's a great way to look at it. I do think though, when you're acquiring, the important thing that you said is we have processes in place. We know how to do this. So we're going to come in and we're going to help those people do it. And then we're going to hire more people. I'm sure sometimes people are resistant and you know they have to, they may have to exit. Uh, but I think that's just something really important to think about. Do you have the internal operations that are needed to support that acquisition? Because I have seen some pretty crazy, pretty large, crazy acquisitions, you know, a uh, $50 million company merging with an $80 million company and two completely different separate sales teams. Of course, everything about the inner workings different and nobody really knows how to bring it all together. So it can be, it can be kind of scary. Um, so it is important to note that you have a way to literally either, you know, you're not really merging when you're acquiring them because you're in charge, but you still have to merge all the process and the people and the, and the training and everything has to meld together to make it really work. So I think that's, that's an important yeah. thing. It's important. And another thing too, I tell Alice people is like, 
don't change everything for like at least six months. Right. Right? So even today, like when we've done, I don't know how many acquisitions we've done now, it's probably been 10 or 12, right? But even today, we don't go in and change everything on the team the first week. Like that's really scary for the team. It's a great way to lose people. Um, so we, we try and learn that organization because we can make assumptions, even being in the same brand. We often know these people for years in advance of them joining our team. We can make a lot of assumptions about how their team runs and how their offices run, but really until we get into the weeds with them and ask questions and understand their way of doing things, um, we we don't understand and we don't understand what changes we would make would impact them. And sometimes I think like this Austin office we just acquired, they had an entirely different role than we don't have in our business brokerage process that I never had, would have thought of. And if I was moving too fast and just went, this is our process, this is what we're implementing, I would have missed that entire value add that we gained from that acquisition. So Again, I guess the theme of this podcast is patience, right? But it's slowing down a little bit and learning the other operations too before we say, here's the way we do things, let's go, right? We right. usually give it at least six months um, of this adaptability um, where they're not completely on our systems, they're not completely on our processes. We're learning a little bit about each other. Um, and then usually it's, it's like I said, it's usually about six months, but we try and start at the beginning of every year. It's like January 1st is our full integration date. Um, that's with the Austin acquisition we did in March. That's their full integration date is January 1st. So they got about nine months. Um, but the first year is really about adapting and not forcing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, so where, where are you going next? I mean, you've got these new offices I, and maybe you're going to hire some more salespeople for each of the offices, but what's coming next? Yeah, we're really focused on the development of the offices. So um, Texas, I, like I mentioned, we've just done some major acquisitions um, and we really just want to focus on supporting and growing this team. My husband and I actually relocated down from Colorado last year um, to support the team. Um, Nevada is a newer market for us too. We were talking a little bit, they have some licensing issues in Nevada that prevented our growth quickly. Um, but we have a partner, um, in that organization that moved out there to run that office. So really just buckling down. We're probably not doing any acquisitions right now. We've got a lot on our plate. I also have a two-year-old. Um, so that stuff at home going on. Changes your life, right? Changes our life. But there's just, I mean, and even in Colorado or foundation, there's just still so much opportunity we haven't harvested. Um, yeah. And there's so many business owners we want to help, especially through that preparation phase. Our focus is just making sure we're serving the communities we're in at our fullest capacity. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Well, gosh, thank you so much for being on the show today. You've really given our audience a lot to think about, I'm sure. So tell everybody where they can find you. Yeah. So um, you can find me um, on, on social media, Jessica Fiakovich. I'm most active on LinkedIn um, and Instagram. Even if you spell my name wrong, it comes up. That's the fortunate part of having a last name as complicated as mine. Um, and you can also visit, I'm most active in our Exit Factor company. So you can visit our website at exitfactor.com. Wonderful. And if you do approach Jessica on LinkedIn, please be sure in your connection request to tell her that you um, learned about her and her company from Sales Talk for CEOs, then she'll be much more likely to accept your connection request when she knows where it came from. Well, thanks again. I wish you all the best. It sounds like you have built an amazing culture uh, for your company, your people that work for you, and I uh, just can't wait to continue watching you grow and thrive. 
Thank you so much, Alice. It was great being on the show with you today. If you enjoyed the show, please like and subscribe, and we'll see you next week.